0: Hey everybody. Welcome back into Mining Stock Daily. This is your week's long-form episode here on the podcast. Trevor Hall here with you once again. Uh, we have Sprott's Sam Broom back on the podcast. He's always been a fan favorite for the number of years that we've been publishing uh, this uh, podcast and now YouTube channel. So if you wouldn't mind, hit that like, share, subscribe, all the things, leave a review if you don't mind. And uh, this is a great conversation with Sam. Obviously, Coming uh, from the asset management side of things, but I mean, has a keen, spidey sense of what's going on with precious metals and also base metals. So, we kind of talked the gamut along the metals commodity space and really spent a lot of time talking about this move behind precious metals, the fundamentals, and the geopolitics of it all. So, it's a really important conversation to try to get a sense of, you know, certain things, what's moving, because you never know what's going to happen over the weekend. Special thank you to Western Copper and Gold, Fireweed Metals, and Arizona Snoring Copper for their continued support of the podcast. And if you'd like, please shoot me an email, trevor at clearcreekdigital.com for any questions or follow-ups. All right, everybody, here's my conversation with Sam Broom. Have a great weekend. Well, Mister Sam Broom, it's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. How you been?
1: Yeah, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. Keeping well. How about yourself?
0: Yeah, good. Uh, doing well. I mean, obviously the the news continues. Explorers are still out there drilling projects, uh, and uh, we're seeing some some good results. Uh, you know, from across the board, uh, the market isn't necessarily there to reward good results as it once was. And uh, you know, they, give me a sense of how you know you've been kind of fill in your time there at Sprott, given these uh, real lousy markets?
1: Yeah, no, no doubt about it. It's been tough, um, particularly anything speculative, right? There's there's not a lot of speculative animal spirits out there right now for a number of reasons, which I'm sure we'll dive into at some point. But, um, you know, whilst it's, you know, as a, as a resource investor, it feels like you've gone through all the different phases of grief over the last few years at various points in time. <laughs> you know, if, if you put your, put that aside, it's, if you've got a long-term view, I mean, these are the kind of markets that if you can keep your wits about, you pick up some of the stuff that's just unloved and, you know, poor liquidity and fund flows and all that sort of stuff, whatever the reason, has knocked it down. I mean, this is the, the type of period where you can set yourself up for the next five, 10 years if, if you keep your wits about just so. Look, it's been tough. It, it has been, uh, I'm sure it's been tough on all resource investors mentally, but there's also there's also some excitement out there there's it's certainly a buyer's market and you know you Mm -hmm. it's often you know it's funny how you look back when a sector's taken off for a year or two and you wish you'd been more aggressive when things were on sale and you sort of kick yourself for for not doing that 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 situation's staring you right in the face today um if if you've got a contrarian mindset and a long term long term time horizon so there's plenty to be excited Mm -hmm. about too
0: yeah give me a sense of just on your uh your personal professional journey. Oh, how, how did that contrarian mindset kind of come about? I mean, it it doesn't it just, it just doesn't flip like a switch. Uh, it takes a lot <laughs> of time and and maybe some hindsight to to recognize times like these. I would assume.
1: You know, I, I mean, I fortunately or unfortunately, I kind of came you know I, I came into the mining space you know not on the financial side, but you know I was working in the mining industry starting around two thousand twelve. So I basically came in perfectly at the top. So I got to witness, you know, on the engineering mining side of things, what happens in major companies when commodity prices dramatically shift. You know, budgets. You know, it goes goes from being any heartbeat, get you out on site, we'll fly you out there, we'll pay you a bunch of money, to projects got the kibosh, everything's on hold. We're laying people off literally in the span of weeks. You know, like I, I experienced that right. firsthand. Um, since then, you know, in the since I moved to the financial market side of things in sort of 20 late 2015, early 2016, I mean, it's been a roller coaster um, for sure. Um, you know, being in the markets in that time, you kind of haven't had the option of being anything but contrarian, right? I mean, we've had a few little blips here and there, 12, 18 months where things have been okay, you know, 2019 through mid 2020 for the gold stocks, a little bit longer for copper and silver and things like that you know uranium's coming up now you know energy's had a few good years now but by and large i mean it, you've had to have been a contrarian to be in this space the last 10 years really right um it's sort of been a long mm-hmm. what, what i view as a long grinding bottom process to the whole commodity trade um and, and i think we're probably getting to the exciting part of of that Long grinding phase. Um, I think it's probably mm. going to continue to be volatile. You know, there's plenty of macro risks and liquidity risks that will um, almost certainly get caught up with here in the mining space. But you know, you don't you don't go through a period of time like this where capital is being constrained to the sector without there being flow on effects in the mid to long term. And we're certainly starting to see some of that go from being um, inevitable to perhaps imminent
0: yeah you know coming off you know it's been one week since i've had my trip uh, to london for lme week and there was a number of different themes that kind of popped up in conversations and i've kind of pontificated on the last couple of days you know obviously we're seeing you know precious metals have had a rebound off those just horrible uh bottoms that we saw about 1815 and gold uh there's obviously in hindsight we talk about hindsight but that was almost overdone and way oversold we've seen an extreme bounce higher off those bottoms but outside of precious metals like some of the the themes that i was picking up from in london were you know uh, met coal was a conversation that kept coming up in conversations demand for iron ore came kept coming up in conversations and these these commodities that the big producers the bhps and the glencores continue uh, to kind of hang their hat on um, you know a lot of times in this space when we talk about speculation and resource development and exploration it seems like some of those more important commodities are kind of left to the back burner I've, have you had any more conversations with your clients or maybe other people in the sector about you know keeping you know kind of seeing the forest through the trees here and seeing where opportunities are lying if they're not necessarily in precious metals
1: you know what it's interesting we've we've definitely had a resurgence in interest in coal which i you know i probably haven't had any interest in coal for most of my career um i think it's one of those classic scenarios where it was left for dead right i mean these coal miners yeah. are being priced as if coal's not going to exist beyond 2030 you, you know what i mean i mean they're trading at ridiculous mm-hmm. you know multiples um, they've just been shunned, you know, the whole ESG movement. It's, I mean, you've seen, I don't know if you saw the news with BHP just divesting two of its um, flagship coal assets this week. They've sort of just been pushed out, you know, it's become an uninvestable space. And because of that, the, there's been lack of investment in capacity, you know, in growing capacity. And if you look at coal consumption globally, I mean, it's still going up every year, right? I mean, regardless of whether you think coal's going to be dead past 2030 or whatever, um, you know, I I, I personally can't see that. I I think, in fact, it's probably likely that coal demand actually goes up, but we will see. There's just no, there's no, there's been no investment in growth and capacity, you know, even to maintain existing levels. So obviously, you know, you had this crazy spike in both met and thermal coal last year that sort of reignited or, or brought to the forefront that, commodities like coal that have been forgotten are still so important to the global economy, right? The globe just cannot function without coal. It's still such an important part of both the energy mix and, you know, steel, obviously it's a key ingredient in steel manufacturing. So I think, you know, for investors that that don't have a mandate that excludes them from investing in coal, I think it's really, really interesting. Um, And it feels a little bit like there's been a, tipping point recently where that the 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 um the realities of life are coming back to the forefront again and that we can't just ignore those commodities <laughs> um you know we, we've got a, a third party a group of analysts that we employ out of well they're global but they're based out of australia and they were in town last week and they were just doing a big north american road show and they were shocked because for the first time in their existence they were getting asked, the number one thing they were getting asked about was coal <laughs> from investors, which they, wow. they have almost haven't had before. So there's definitely been a rekindling of interest in sort of the more old school, you know, quote unquote dirty, less ESG friendly commodities like coal. Um, I, I've actually been shocked at the resilience of iron ore, um, given all the woes going on in, tri- in China. I mean, obviously, they're a giant consumer of, of iron ore. Um but you know, from the investment side of things, I mean, those big bulk commodities are very simple. to Well, I shouldn't say very simple. They're a lot simpler to mine, and they're often very, very profitable commodities. For for the profitability cycle seems to be a lot bigger in those commodities. There's a lot. They're a lot kind of simpler. I mean, it's just a lot of it's just digging up dirt, putting in a truck, shipping it. Right? It's there's a lot mm. less concentration mm. and metallurgical issues and all that sort of stuff that you get with the metals markets. So they're definitely not markets that resource investors should look past. They're not quite as sort of quote unquote sexy as you know the metals and various other forms. But you know just just look at the profitability of the big boys like Rio and BHP and all of that. It's it's definitely not a space you want to completely ignore for sure.
0: Right. Well, I mean, in, in, I'm wondering if we've learned that as resource investors and even and and the speculators and lower down the curve. Uh, if we have forgotten to be agile in the commodity space and maybe we forget far too often that the metal space is more than just gold and copper you know i i mean have you had have you had any of those kind of thoughts or epiphanies in the last year
1: yeah i mean and i th- I, I just think they've been it's just if you look i don't have the numbers in front of me but i'm sure if you look at the number of juniors in the coal space and the iron ore space relative to the precious metal space and in the base metal space i bet it's a tiny fraction of the of the amount right it's these big bulk commodities tend to be the realm of the big boys which tend to be more in the realm of long-term investors like i know in australia for example you know bhp and rio are some of the largest companies on the asx or i think they might even be the two of the largest companies in the ASX. They're in all the retirement portfolios. They love it because they pay out big dividends. You know, I think a couple of years ago, BHP paid out a total shareholder yield of something like 17%. You know what I mean? This is a big $150-plus and company. So it's just a little bit of a different target audience for the, for the commodities. That's not to say there aren't interesting speculative options in the junior space, but I, I just feel like those markets are much more heavily weighted to the larger cap institutional style Companies as opposed to you know the smaller cat speculative juniors,
0: yeah uh you know I, I I do want to kind of talk about big picture like news headlines that have been in front of us for the last two weeks and what it means for the commodities trade, um, but before we get there uh you know the the the, you, the relationship between you and the podcast has been going on for a number of years, <laughs> and you've always kind of been like our base metal you know, go-to guy for for many times. Uh, And I thought about you earlier this week when uh, another media publication last week in London published the interview with Robert Friedland. And he was very outspoken talking about lithium and battery metals and battery technologies. And, um, you know, I don't know if they just, he said he was grumpy that day. But, uh, you know, I don't know if they just caught him on a bad day. But, you know, what, he was pointing out it was, you know, it it wasn't very uplifting for the entire development market of base and battery metals. Uh, I don't know how, you know, did you seem to watch that or catch the highlights of that <sighs> I must admit discussion? I haven't seen what it. Yeah, what
1: what it? was his gloomy oh, really? outlook? What was the, the sort of key talking about?
0: Uh, he basically said to short all the lithium plays. Yeah.
1: I mean, I've got to be careful what I say. You know, I'm, I'm not.
0: Right, I, I think right. I
1: think lithium went through a classic boom phase, right? And whenever you have an industry where the margins are so gargantuan, you know, we were talking, we were looking at some of these producers with 70, 80, 90 percent sometimes margins on what they're producing. There's going to be a supply response. It's going to pull every little, every little pound or ton or whatever it is out of the, you know, out of the market that's available. So I, I you know, I've personally been a little bit cautious on lithium. For a while, I, frankly, I, I probably was too cautious. I, you know, I didn't play hugely in the in the upswing either. Um, for me, lithium, it's not like some of the base metals or most of the base metals or gold, and that there's there's genuine geological scarcity, right? Um, like so with stuff like copper, I just can't see where the mines of the future are going to come from. They just don't exist, or at least in the quantity that we're going to need them for. With lithium, um, you know, there's just it feels like there's a new tier one lithium deposit being discovered every day just about right there's a new big Mm. (laughs) big massive discovery um one thing with lithium i find interesting is that you're getting non-industry players starting to come into the market now picking up assets right or or you're getting big industry players paying what seems like very 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 full prices for for assets particularly the chilean players is obviously with what's gone on in chile there's a there's an interest in these guys, I like, guess, you know, SQM, which you know, I'm sure your, your followers are all familiar with what's happened over in Aussie in particular. it has been a bunch of bids and some weird things going on over there. So when you see that,
0: it just. Lionstown? Yeah, that's it? been yeah, a debacle
1: you've... with gina Reinhardt and all the stuff going on there. Um, right,
0: right, right. Well, in Cadelco in Chile, Cadelco just bought its first lithium project.
1: Yeah, exactly. I saw news this morning. Um, and, you know, whenever you get like car manufacturers starting to look at investing in mining production of lithium and things like that. I think that's historically when that's happened in other commodities, it's kind of been a fairly toppy signal, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, though, the lithium price has already come off a long way from where it was last year or it was last year or, you know, late 2021. Mm-hmm. So in terms of where the lithium price is trading, at, it's actually interesting from a contrarian standpoint. Um, a lot of the equities haven't come off what I would have expected given what the lithium price has done. Um, so I guess there's two schools of thought about that. You know, there's some people believe mining equities lead commodity prices and that the equities holding up means we do a rebound in the lithium price. And, and, you know, certainly out three, four, five years, the supply demand dynamics for lithium look very bullish in the short term. The next couple of years, they look a bit oversupplied. Um obviously there's a big wild card on what the demand side actually does look like whether it ramps as much as you know analysts are predicting and I th- I think reality is probably going to be somewhere in the middle of you know the bear case and the bull case mm-hmm. um so yeah I mean if if the if the equities came off a little further I'd probably it would probably start to tempt me uh, I think the this current M&A frenzy we're seeing has probably kept a lot of the prices of the equities higher than The lithium price would suggest so personally i'm probably waiting to see how it how it settles out a little bit here on the lithium space Mm -hmm. um in terms of the other battery metals i think you know i still stick by copper being one of the best long-term plays you know long-term commodity themes to have exposure to in the long run Next year, I mean, at the moment, all everyone can talk about is how big's the 2024 surplus going to be, right? Um, there's <laughs> 2024 looks like it's going to be the worst year of the decade in terms of the supply-demand dynamics. However, in saying that, mm. people were thinking this year was going to have a decent surplus as well, and that just hasn't materialized. There's been a whole host of downgrades in production. Um, just about, you know, all the all the analytics we get, they're um, just constantly downgrading. Supply, so it wouldn't surprise me if the deficit, if sorry, if the surplus next year is much skinnier than is currently being forecast, and it wouldn't even surprise me if it ended up being we ended up having a deficit next year. The caveat being, you know, everyone's still waiting for this bloody recession to rear its head. So if if we have a global calamity and demand, you know, global activity, economic activity just implodes, then you know everything's Mm. off the table. Um, But I, I think copper at 350 or wherever it's trading right now, a pound is starting to get into pretty contrarian setup. I mean, there's a not a lot of miners making. Most miners are still making a little bit of profit, but it's 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 starting to get pretty skinny below 350 and certainly three dollars i mean there's there's going to be a lot of supply that just comes off the market at three bucks a pound copper there's there's no not a lot of players making when you need everything out if you look beyond you know your c1 cash costs and look at the true cost of production three bucks is a is a pretty pretty interesting floor i mean we could we could go lower than that on a big liquidity event um but that's the you know for me on a really contrarian sense I start getting interested in commodities when there's significant portions of the cost curve that they're underwater not making money and you start seeing mine closures and things like that yeah. um, so. we
0: we had a we had a guest on the other day talking about palladium actually at the, co- the the price action of palladium and the typical costs associated with mining palladium just aren't just aren't there and he seemed very bullish on palladium you know, obviously that's kind of more classified as a precious metal, but it has obviously lots of industrial uses. But you know, in the fears of that recession, whenever it shows up, if it shows up, Sam, I mean, obviously, cop- the copper chart looks like it's it has been preparing for a recession. You could make the same argument for the other industrial metals, ni- nickel, zinc, perhaps. You know, is it is is that where the traders are seeing? Are they just kind of is, it, is the price action just kind of trying to sniff out the timing of this recession and preparing for it?
1: I think there's definitely a big part of that, especially in the copper space. You know, copper is kind of the more of a hedge fund play thing. you know, with, with the depth of the market. You know, some of the smaller markets like palladium and nickel and stuff like that, I think there's less. It's not absent financial players, but there's less of it. But they are smaller markets, so it takes much less to move them around. So I do think a lot of it is just, you know, financial players trying to express a theme um you know with stuff like nickel I mean nickel nickel ever like everyone's talking about the surplus next year in copper everyone's talking about the Indonesian supply and in nickel that's coming on right now so I do think there are some fundamental drivers some supply side drivers that are f- f- making nickel quite weak um, I'm not quite seeing the inventory response I would have expected, given how bearish everyone seems to be on nickel right now. You know, inventory levels are still fairly low with nickel. Um, it's also going to be interesting to see with a lot of these commodities whether there is a bifurcated market that opens up for sort of, you know, um, green, low carbon nickel, because obviously all the Indonesian nickel about as carbon intensive as you can get, right? So if people <laughs> really do care about low carbon nickel, you know, the indoor stuff doesn't solve that problem. It always makes it worse. But if people just care about lowest cost nickel in their batteries, then, you know, there's, there is there is a bit of a supply situation to work through in the nickel market right now. Um, but, you know, longer term, it's some, you know, sometimes some of these battery metals in particular, I mean, low, low prices almost do the theme a favor in the longer term, right? Because right now we're in this phase of, huge um, production capacity expansion in the battery space. And if nickel was relatively low priced or not priced at excessive levels, it almost incentivizes more investment in that technology, right? If nickel were three or four times higher, all of a sudden there's all these incentives to manufacture or design nickel out of batteries, right? I feel like we, we were seeing starting to hear rumors of that a couple of years ago when nickel really spiked. So in a way, it's sort of the current price situation is almost adding to the bullish case for something like nickel out three, four, five years Um, because it's kind of I'm hearing rumours that that, you know it's it's there's less chatter now about it getting engineered out of batteries given the the price range Mm. it's been in lately. So a lot of complex dynamics, you know, there's a lot of guesswork that goes into the supply demand side of things, but a lot of these base metals are starting to look starting to get down to fairly contrarian levels.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I, I've I've been given some thought to this uh, new generation of electric vehicles and in the, in the battery technology. And I just, you know, I, I always try to, listen, I, I think the market uh, and the consumer wants the electrification of transportation in their everyday vehicles. A majority of people, I think so. Uh, and I can just tell you from my own personal experience, I've got family members that were We're, you know, cursing out the Prius 20 years ago and now want a Tesla. So, like, you know, so I've seen that this transformation firsthand. But I also kind of wonder if maybe this forecast for electric vehicles has been overdone. And we know not everybody is going to buy an electric vehicle the next time they purchase a car. Maybe it's because they, don't live in a major, major city where, you know, maybe they need to drive a hundred, hundreds of miles frequently during the week and they just, there's not enough charging stations. Uh Maybe they live in a cold weather environment where in the winter it doesn't make sense to drive an electric vehicle because the battery capacity, the power capacity in the battery during the winter just, just dwindles. You know, and so... You know, I, and, and we just haven't had a full, real generation of electric vehicle ownership yet, right? Well, we haven't even tested and what I'm happened. Just...
1: You know, the, how long is a battery life in a tester or an electric vehicle, right? I mean, my, what I'm right. hearing, it's 10 to 12, maybe 14 years. I mean, we're just getting to the point now where the sort of original wave of EV ownership is coming to the end of their battery life, right? And we don't know. People haven't really thought about how much it's going to cost when they have to re- replace an entire battery and these things every 12 years, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole host of unknown factors, uh-huh. right? Um, so it'll be interesting. And nobody
0: wants to drive the same vehicle for 14 years anymore, unless you're my father. My father <laughs> would drive the same vehicle for 14 years. But nobody else in the world would do that.
1: Yeah, I will say, <laughs> it's an, I think it's a bit more of an American thing not to sort of run your car into the ground. Because you know back over in New Zealand, I, I feel like, yeah we, there's a whole different discussion but yeah, yeah. <laughs> americans especially do not like driving old cars so yeah yeah that's yeah.
0: right i know so you know just you know i'm just kind of you know preparing at some point like maybe we have it all wrong you know we just haven't seen a full generation of electric vehicles being adopted used and then seeing those long-term uh, effects on the consumer and the driver. I, I the think user, you're probably right. right. So. I
1: think the the dynamics are going to play out a little differently than everyone expects, right? It's usually the case. I do think there are a lot of pros to EVs. You know, I mean, they're fun to drive. You know, my mate got got a new Model mm. Y the other day and I took it for a spin for the first time and I was like, okay, I get it. Like, these are fun. You know, and if you're, if you're just using right. them for a daily commute back and forth, they make a lot of sense, right? But there are obviously huge limitations if you, if you want to go on a big road trip or whatever, right? It's there's massive limitations um, having to stop for an right. hour to charge at find a charging station and you know I was driving back from Vegas a few months ago and there was like a what looked like a multi-hour queue to queue up for your charging at one of the few spots along the way and bits and bobs like that so you know it it, it is I think it is a trend that's here to stay but I don't think it's I don't think it's going to be as smooth bottom left top right as as people say it's going to be there's, there's going to be lots of yeah nuances along the way
0: well, let's talk about something that has been somewhat smooth on the way up, and that's been gold from 1815. Yeah, <laughs> you like that transition? Uh, listen, uh, this was pretty. This has been a pretty amazing move. We have put on uh, 100 and 100 over 150 dollars on the price in just a matter of two two weeks, give or take. Here, Sam, uh, we've had a lot of discussions this week on the pod about you know the backdrop of this move in gold. Uh, there's fundamental reasons. There's geopolitical reasons, obviously. I'm sure you have fielded a number of, of phone calls, uh, and conversations about the price action gold. It isn't necessarily lifting all boats. Uh, we are seeing some of the major gold producers, uh, get some better price action in their charts. A lot of the major royalty companies, obviously, but it's certainly not trickling down to the explorers by any means. Um, So maybe let's just start out with the price action, the metal and what you're seeing behind this move. Is it more of a fundamental macroeconomic buy or is it because there's shit going down in the Middle East and anything could happen on any given day? Yeah,
1: good questions. Um, Could be a combo of all the above. I mean, I I have a policy given many scars over the last five, 10 years of not buying on geopolitical-based moves, right? They usually flash in the pan. They usually roll over. So you could argue this yeah. is just what what you know what's going on in Israel and Gaza, you know, sort of panic buying on on that. I, I can see that. I also feel like there's there's definitely something else going on behind the scenes as well. I think there's just too many other correlations that are breaking in the background for it to just be purely that. It's probably a combo factor. Um, obviously, the weird thing right now is all of gold's usual correlations to you know real rates and the dollar are just completely breaking down right so yields and in particular real yields are going you know gone parabolic lately um that's Mm -hmm. usually kryptonite for gold right if if you told me a couple of years ago would be sitting at five and a half percent fed funds and you know good 200 plus basis point of real yield um i would have thought gold would have been back at Twelve to fourteen hundred bucks, you know what I mean, and then you overlay right. strong dollar, one hundred and five plus on top of that. I would have said, yeah, we're we're gold's going to be doing it tough. Um, clearly, that's not the case. So, you know, and and on top of that, there's negative Western and in, investor interest in gold, right? We're still seeing massive outflows from GLD and all the key physical ETFs. Um, so it's, that makes it even more impressive, right? There's all these negative factors that should be, which means we should be seeing a much lower gold price. Um, I can't fully describe, I can't fully explain it, frankly. Like, I'm sort of sitting here every day scratching my head going, how is gold not taking more of a beating? Um, you know, and so there are obviously some big players positioning themselves for almost like an emerging market-style crisis in the US. You know, this this is t- the typical EM playbook is, you know, you, you, you raise yields to try and curb inflation, which makes your debt service even harder. Which means your currency gets whacked because you're printing more money to pay the debt. and Yada yada yada. It's like a negative. It's like a positive feedback loop that spirals you into into abyss, right? And that's where off ramps from the fiat system become important. That's why all people in you know Argentina and you know lots of most of Asia own tons of gold, right? It's it's the way to store your savings right. in a non depreciating form of savings so something is something people are clearly starting to position in gold for some sort of event like that escalating in the US and clearly you know it doesn't I'm sure all your listeners have heard ad nauseum about the massive wave of treasury issuance that we're dealing with right now you know the explosion of US debt Um, so you know this, this simple supply demand side situation in the treasury market looks really weird to be honest it looks kind of scary frankly um so right. I, I think that's you know and it, it's hard to know who's actually doing the buying of the gold because it's clearly not western institutions and in retail right that all the vehicles they're using to 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 gain exposure to gold are seeing outflows <laughs> so it's coming from somewhere Well, else in,
0: in, yeah uh, you know to kind of uh Come back to that question: Who's buying? Like my question is, well, before people were buying, somebody was absolutely selling. Yeah, totally. I mean, that was a huge dump from. I mean, basically from 1965 down to 1815. And that's that's all I happening mean, in the financial
1: we... market, right? That's the futures market. So, there. I mean, gold. When you're not on a strong bull or bear trend, you know, gold's just a plaything for hedge funds, right? It's it's deep and liquid, mm-hmm. and it's easy to manipulate. You know, without putting on my sort of tin hat manipulator. it's just that's what happens in markets right big players with big pools of capital push things around to trade make trading gains and gold is a very common plaything is when when there's no clear strong trend right and we've basically been consolidating for years multiple years now so interest is relatively low um and you see it in the positioning right i mean managed money's now net short in gold and silver per the last commitment of traders report so they've just kind of when the data's come out, that's usually bad for gold. They're just pushing the shorts, pushing the shorts, pushing the shorts. But that does set up a, you know, when positioning gets net negative amongst managed money. I mean, it's no, it's not massively insightful to say this, but it's only happened a few, on a few occasions in the last ten years, and we've almost, without exception, had significant rallies out of positioning like this. So I I think it's a very interesting time to be long gold. I I would not want to be short gold at the moment with everything going on (laughs) in the world and this price action we're seeing. Um, But I I guess to go down the rabbit hole, you mentioned the the equities and in particular the junior market and why that hasn't responded yet. And and, and let's be honest, that's been the case now for a couple of years, right? I mean, last year as well we got a decent rally from the lows in gold and the miners didn't really do a ton. You know, at, at the end of the day, the miners are like a derivative on the gold price, right? And, and it, mm-hmm. it multiplied by the sort of level of investor fervor for, for speculation in the space. And if you look out in all markets, not just mining markets, speculative fervor is almost non-existent, right? I mean, even in, you know, the tech space, right? You look at the Nasdaq's decently up, but it's basically all four or five big big large caps because people have almost they're almost using the the big what are the the mag seven or whatever they're calling them as almost like a magnificent the magnificent seven. seven. Yeah. They're almost that's almost like the gold trade for Investors that have been conditioned that tech's the only space you can be, right? They go and hide out in these big seven large cap names. You look at like Kathy Wood's ARC fund, right? Which was the poster child of the speculative excesses of 2020, 2021. I mean, she's still down 70, 80% from her highs, you know, floundering around the bottom with zero interest in any of that stuff. So broadly out there, when you've got 5.5%, you know, yield on a risk-free asset, you know, in the, in the short-term T-bills. I mean, it just sucks speculative demand out of everywhere. I mean, I'm seeing it from my accounts, right? People are just,
0: Are, you, are, are you, I was going to say, are you seeing, uh, you know, customers or investors say, why take on the risk in this, uh, you know, junior space, and when I can take this and go get guaranteed five percent. Yeah, two
1: a... hundred basis points of real yield taking on no risk, and kind of like they're not disinterested, but they're just like, well, it's been so tough for so long. I'm just going to sit and wait for there to be a bit bit of a trend, clear trend change, and for the stuff to matter again. That's a fairly common conversation.
0: But isn't there? But it, doesn't the risk continue? And I, I'm a I, listen. I, I'm I'm not a bond market guru by any means. In fact, I've been I've learned more in the last couple of months than I think I've ever learned before. But isn't there added risk in the bond market if they continue to add to its supply? I mean,
1: yeah. I mean, if you if you're out and if you're out on the duration curve, there is, right? I mean, just look. I mean, look at the long bond, right? You're down forty, fifty percent if you bought at the panic peak in 2020. I mean, if you're buying one to three month T-bills right. via BIL or whatever, I mean, there's there's no duration risk, right? I mean, you could the, your risk is that inflation rockets and they cut rates in spite of that, and you all of a sudden you got real negative yields and you know. But if, if, that happens, you're gonna see, if you're gonna see the dynamic reverse, I think where you have a flip back into risk on, cuz all of a sudden, everyone's gotta take risk again to earn a return, right? That's, that's kind of how it mm-hmm. works. So, I mean, I, I, personally would not be, I don't have the cojones to, um, make a major call going long, the long bond. Cuz I, I can see this mm-hmm. massive risk to higher for longer yields, especially on the long end. Um, but I do think that, you know, for the first time in my professional career, there is, you know, the whole Tina thing. There is no alternative. Well, now there is an alternative, right? If you want to be conservative okay. and do even better than preserving your purchasing power, there is there is a reasonable real yield at the short end. So that's just the reality. That right. is what it is. Um, longer, Mid to longer term, though, I mean, the, the US government with current debt levels, and it's not just the US government, right? It's globally, all, all governments are in the same boat. Most governments are in the same boat. 200 basis points of real yield, that can't last. That things are good, it's, The system's going to break. Um, so something's right. going to happen eventually. Uh, I'm surprised that hasn't happened yet, frankly. I mean, I guess we saw whiffs of it with the SVB and whatnot earlier this year. Um, and I have a, my spidey senses are kind of tingling that either later this year or... Or uh, early next year, something's kind of brewing. Um, yeah, but
0: I mean, Jerome Powell stated in his uh, in his Q and A this week that uh, there seemed to be a little bit more concern of the regional banks. He had a quick little comment in there. Yeah, which is very was very interesting. And you're right. I mean, I'm surprised too that something major hasn't broken, other than what we saw back in March. Um, but I, I'm waiting to just wake up someday and hear some, something.
1: Well, it, you know, everything's fine unless they get a run or they get significant outflows and they actually have to take realized losses on their mark, you know, hold the maturity portfolio. Right. So as long as that doesn't right. happen, theoretically, there's not really an issue, but that's clearly what happened with the, with the bank this the regional banks. Right. And then, you know how it is with fear, right? It spreads like wildfire and people start speculating mm-hmm. who's next and it. It is something that could get out of hand relatively quickly and and even then even beyond that there's i'm sure there's all sorts of pockets of risk that we don't even realize exists right now you know the insurance market the reinsurance market you know there's so many cornerstones to the financial system where bonds and particularly long bonds are a cornerstone part of the collateral that back the whole system that there's just there is almost certainly you know, near dead bodies <laughs> just sitting right below the surface that we're, that we're not being talked about yet. So we'll see.
0: Yeah. And not not just the dead bodies in junior mining because there's quite a few of yeah. them right now. Yeah, yeah. That's, but Sam, so one of the things I did want to ask you about in this conversation was, listen, We I don't need to go out there. You and I don't need to have a, more conversation about just how gloomy these markets are right now for the resource speculators. Let's talk about where the opportunities are. Um and I've had a number of conversations the last couple of weeks that have been actually pretty eye opening as far as listen, this how bad the markets are poses opportunities, uh not only for investors, but opportunities for the companies uh out there. Listen, if you need to find flow, if you need to find some sort of new areas of liquidity, there's certain things I think the market is telling you that you need to do you need to merge you need to kind of join forces and you know if there's no liquidity on the venture exchange, can you go somewhere else to find liquidity i yep. mean that's an idea that's kind of popped up um you know I guess you know I have my thoughts as an American <laughs> and a retail investor is like i I, I wish more companies do this. For example, like the Integra merger with Millennial. I, you know, obviously the market hasn't rewarded them for the move, but I personally think that was a great move.
1: Yeah, I mean, no, for sure. Preach,
0: preach preach, what you want. Preach what the market is asking you to do and then go out and do it. But don't sit on the sidelines and say, as a CEO and say, Well, this junior market, we need to become less and then not do anything about it.
1: And, and I have a, right. it's probably not what your listeners want to hear, but I have a view that that's sort of, uh, extinction event in the junior space is a good thing for the sector you know in my opinion there's far too many juniors out there that don't have any value and it dilutes the whole space right so i, I would much rather there mm-hmm. be consolidation of the better players a bunch of sort of lifestyle companies go out of business and the whole sector cleans itself up and becomes a more investable space for the average investor because we all know there's a lot of crap in the space right there's a ton of opportunity too but you, you do have to be careful of all the landmines out there um you know, so yeah, look, getting creative looking at ways of, you know, I definitely think a range of mergers. I think, I think we're at, we're on the cusp of a bottom of the market merger wave. Usually we see sort of acquisitions and M&A type activity has like a minor peak at market troughs when things get so attractive that, that um, sort of contrarian buyers come out of the woodwork and pick things up on the cheap. I, I do think we are entering that phase now and I'm, quite curious to see what hmm. comes of it I do think there will be some extinction events or companies there'll be a lot of there's already been a lot of juniors rebranding as you know AI companies or whatever right you know how it works the sort, of, the yep. sort of ambulance chases which, which personally I think is, is a good thing um But yeah, you know, this capital is definitely hard to come by and cost of capital has gone up dramatically, Um, but there are players out there with a contrarian mindset where this is the gift. This is the time where they get the most active. You know, for example, we've got a a fund that I'm involved with that, um, you know, is specifically tasked with investing in the, primarily the junior space, primarily through private placements. You know, and we've, we've been on. I would call it the buying spree, but the last sort of 12, 18 months has been the perfect market environment for us to put capital to work. You know, I'd much rather be putting capital to work during a phase like the last 12, 18 months than, you know, I mean, I'm not going to call 2020 a massive boom top, but, you know, the valuations are certainly a lot more attractive. There's certainly a lot less competition for our capital, which means we can drive, you know, better terms for us um, and our investors. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it hasn't been super fun. But but I think looking back in five years' time, I think we'll be pretty pretty glad that we had a period like this where the fund was in invest up mode. So um, you know you've just got to you've 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 really got to have a real value proposition in this environment. You know you have to you have to be a company offering investors real genuine upside and value. So that's what CEOs need to do. Yeah. They need to work hard to show investors, you know, why 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 put your money here? You know, it's not it's not easy. So get to work. <laughs> do,
0: uh, what I, I want to ask you, I mean, this is something that's kinda bothered me all week, and, and what I'm about to ask you, I don't take lightly. Um do the Canadian markets I mean, we know the Canadian markets have a liquidity problem right now. But where does that liquidity problem? spur from i mean is it just in too many companies i mean is it just you know years and years of bad returns because of a number of different variables i i think how do you i do it? think
1: that's a huge part of it i do think in a way making capital markets easy to access and uh, is a good thing you know but in some ways it also you know extremely low barriers to entry have meant Like I said, I just think there's way too many juniors, right? It was just so easy to get a company Mm -hmm. listed and funded, and when times when money's loose and capital's available, you just have, you know, so many companies that show up that shouldn't be there, in my opinion, you know, Um, or or they're just speculative vehicles for a boom time, and they don't have any real long term value, right? Um, So you know, I mean, we're going on the TSX Venture Composite is, it's not purely you know, resource-based, but it's, I, I don't know what the numbers are, right. but it's probably dominantly resource-based, I would guess, you know, and we've had a
0: 10, it's the ugliest chart in the world. Yeah. Is, so it's the so ugliest
1: had, and we've had a 10 year bear market with a few blips here and there in resource space. Right. That's what happens when markets get uh. go through these big cycles and they suck for a long time, you know? Um, and that's where we are today. You know, um, that's just the reality of it. Um, is it, Is it going to turn around and change? I I actually think it it probably is, Um, but it's interesting. you you go look back and look at a chart of the TSXV, right? You look at the volume through Mm. the TSX Venture Composite, literally to the day when Powell raised, you know, when his is first interest rate hike, the volume just dropped like a rock and it stayed there since, right? Mm. So it's, it, it's also an, it's also a product of the environment we're in right now with the broader, you know, liquidity conditions globally. Just, it's just that, that interest rate environment we're going th- through right now has just sapped speculative interest and liquidity from pretty much all speculative markets. So it's not just a TSX yeah. venture thing; it's it's happening globally. I mean, I, I was, you know, I keep in touch with a whole bunch of people from Australia, and they're just bemoaning how the ASX right now is just a is just dead. Like it's 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 horrid, you know. Um, and even hmm. and even uh, and, and they're talking more about the speculative scene. Um, and I've even sure, had. Sure. I think the ASX is is better than the TSX Venture Composite, but in terms of liquidity and, and activity at the moment. But even the are bemoaning yeah. how how tough it is right now. So, what
0: do you think? Um, I mean, what do what do we need for this junior market to get some legs? Do we need? higher metals prices or do we need the bond market to give us some clarity?
1: It's probably a combination of things or or any one thing in big enough dose. You know what I mean? If we get a massive breakout in the gold price, I mean, my, my personal opinion is mining equities, whether it be the large cap end or the speculative juniors, probably are going to not do anything spectacular until we get a proper breakout of gold to new all-time highs. It's just too many people skeptical of that's even going to happen. You know, it's just been mm. so tough for so long. But I think if we get a genuine breakout and blue, you know, blue sky, people are, people are going to wake up again. And every man is, it's almost, it'll almost be like a self-fulfilling prophecy because everyone's kind of in the same boat, right? Like wake me up when we're at new highs. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there's just been so many head fakes and so many people waiting for this this to go um i also Mm -hmm. think that you know the the cost of capital and and inflation and the cost of production for these miners has gone up dramatically in the last few years right in this inflationary wave so you know you i think i think most of these mining equities particularly the precious metal ones are a lot of the better ones are definitely significantly undervalued right now some extremely undervalued but I also can understand why the broad index, like the GDX, is is off its highs from three years ago, despite having the same gold price, because the, the cost profile for the for the whole industry is higher today, so margins are lower mm. at the same gold price. So it, it kind of makes sense to me. But if you get a material breakout in the gold price, you know, say all of a sudden we're at gold twenty two, three, four, five hundred dollars an ounce, I mean, those margins, the, the cash flow generation out of these miners, is just going to be too hard to ignore. Um, and then, you know, usually what happens is the big end of town moves first and it has to last for six months or more before the market really believes it. And then you start seeing the capital flow trickle down to the more speculative end of the market. That mm. That's probably going to be the playbook again, I'm going to say. Um, yeah. But so either that with rates staying high or, you know, the ultimate would be the Fed having to panic cut um, and all of a sudden we have a trend, a negative declining trend in real interest rates, you know, that, that tends to be the, the real catalyst, precious metals in particular, but the whole metals complex, that would materially change the whole liquidity profile of the whole market. I think you'd see, uh, you know, beyond the initial panic phase, because they're, they're probably not going to do anything unless it's a panic phase, is my guess. Mm-hmm. Um, once that settles out, you know, I think you'll see broader animal spirits, speculative animal spirits revived all over the place. I mean, because you got to think about it. I mean, there's so much capital sitting there in, in quasi cash, right? T bills earning five and a half percent. I mean, imagine what happens when that T bill trade becomes unattractive. You know, all of a sudden you're only getting two or three percent on your cash. You know, that all of a sudden gushes out of just sitting on, effectively sitting on the sidelines and goes and looks for a home. And if you're in a stagflationary or a, you know, anything like the current environment, I mean, hard assets like commodities is like, the the place to be right historically that's that's been the best performing sector in conditions like this so i think you could see a significant flow into to our kind of corner of the world and that's that's the framework i'm working to anyway there's obviously going to be a lot of nuance to it and there'll there'll be changes and things will play out much differently than i expect Um, but you know the stage is set it's it feels tough right mm-hmm. now we've all been through the, the stages of grief i'm sure over the last few years but the stage is set and i'm, a, I'm actually weirdly i've kind of starting to get some sort of levels the of spidey exc- senses, yeah, the spidey senses, senses are kind of making me feel <laughs> quite excited for some reason you know it's it's um, well
0: i in the last i mean literally the last week i mean Friday, you know, after Friday, I was on the airplane. I landed and opened up the gold chart. I was like, "What the hell was that?" The, the
1: gold chart looks beautiful. Um, if I'm if I'm a pure trader, it's it's a thing of beauty. You know, it's it's a matter of time. I think. But.
0: I I mean, I feel pretty good. You know, it's not going to happen in one straight line. Uh, I feel pretty pretty good about it. I hope it's a healthy move higher, and you know, obviously, I hope things in the Middle East kind of uh, get solved peacefully. Um, you know and I, I just hope everything's here but uh, on the macro side we just a lot of things economically do not make sense they're unsustainable and I think that's that's my sense Anyways. couldn't agree more Sam <laughs> yeah good good to uh, good to connect once again my friend thanks so much for doing this
1: always a pleasure mate thanks for having me on
0: yep alright alright everybody that's a wrap here this week we'll be back next Monday morning with the morning briefing have a wonderful weekend be well